The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Switch your home to Sky Broadband today. See sky.ie for more. Good morning and you're welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. This is Pat Leahy sitting in this week for Hugh Linehan. Now, the COVID-19 pandemic has receded from public attention and political debate almost as quickly as it arrived and utterly dominated in the early days of 2020. But it was a a once-in-a-lifetime crisis that seemed at one stage to threaten the very foundations of our social order, economic structures and political infrastructure. For almost two years, public and political attention was focused almost exclusively on the progress of the disease and the efforts of creaking health systems to manage it. Daily case numbers, hospital admissions, ICU beds occupied, discharges, the OR number, projections for the future growth or decline of the disease. All of these and more were the metrics by which we lived our daily lives. Society-wide lockdowns, which shut down the social and economic life of the country, became the principal and for a long time the only tool for the authorities to control the spread of the virus. And they went on for months and months. But much of the decision-making by the country's leaders at this time was shrouded in secrecy. Now two journalists have written a revelatory and important book which throws back the curtain on the experience and the political and healthcare management of the pandemic in Ireland. It's called Pandemonium, Power, Politics and Ireland's Pandemic and I'm delighted to say that its two authors join me now. My colleague and regular podcast panellist Jack Horgan-Jones and an especial welcome to Hugh O'Connell, political correspondent with the Irish Independent. Gentlemen, good morning. Good morning, Pat. Morning, Pat. Hugh, you're the guest. I'll pitch the first question for you. Tell me, if, if you will, because I want to concentrate on, if you like, the tradecraft of the book, how you guys went around it. I'm sure many of uh, our listeners, like all people of taste and education, will have at this stage purchased the book and, uh, and, and have read it. But they might be, uh, they might be interested in the story behind the book and how you guys went about it. Um, so tell me about the, the genesis of the book in the first place. How did you come to decide, you know, to do it, to do it as a joint project? Because that strikes me as it can't have been a very easy undertaking, uh, no matter what good pals you might have, uh, you might have been. And, and, and also how you manage that process along with your you know, your daily jobs, much of which must have been covering the same subject. Well, I mean, that in itself helped. But I mean, I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head that the depth of the story was such that it did kind of need two people to do it, uh, I felt. And I think Jack felt that as well. I mean, we are former colleagues in the Sunday Business Post. Um, and we had discussed many times writing about a, a book about something. Um but when this story came along, we realized, I mean, it was pretty clear, I think, that it was going to be one of the biggest stories, if not the biggest story that we ever covered. Um, and there was a book in it, for, for, for sure. So we, uh, I suppose, agreed that we, we should write a book about it. And uh, it was helped by the fact that there was a publisher willing to, to publish the book. 
Um, so we would have had initial conversations about this in, I suppose, June of 2021, um, when it you know became clear that this pandemic was going to drag on a bit longer. It had already at that stage gone on for over a year. And already an enormous amount had happened. I mean, at that stage, we'd had the the big row of October 2020, which we might discuss later, and what happened at Christmas and the very uh, grim uh, January 2021 and, and the, the vaccination program. So there was an awful lot that had happened. And we had been reporting on a lot of this contemporaneously for our newspapers at the time. But there was certainly a, a bigger story to be told and a more in-depth story to be told. Um, and so... You know, once we we got a deal in place to write a book, we set about trying to write a book, and and our, I suppose our kind of guiding principle was to try and get the the best obtainable version of the truth. And to do that, we at the beginning agreed a process whereby we would conduct interviews with people, the, the vast majority of which would be uh, under the journalistic ground rule of, of deep backgrounds. Just explain that to people, yeah. So this means that we could use all of the information that people told us uh, in those interviews, but we could not say who provided that information. Um, so really this was to allow us to, to build as, as accurate a picture as possible of what, what happened, but also to give interviewees the freedom to speak more liberally, perhaps, than they would if they were on the record. Um, but this required an enormous amount of work in terms of sitting down with people, uh, first of all, explaining them to explaining to them what deep background meant and what it didn't mean, um, and then trying to convince them to to tell their story. And in some instances, people were were happy to talk because they recognised, um, thankfully, the importance of what we were doing and the importance of telling their story and getting their side across. And others were more reticent, and and you know we had to do some convincing, uh, some strong arming. Um, some mild threatening. <laughs> Tell us a bit more about that process. I mean, did you go to people and say, look, uh, you know, we're after hearing, you know, this shocking thing that you are uh, reported by other people to have done? Yeah, uh, I mean, that helped a lot. I mean, the more people we spoke to, the more we found out. And so as we got deeper and deeper into the process, there were a couple of people who were really key to the pandemic response that we wanted to speak to. And they were reticent. They were reluctant to speak. Um, for a variety of reasons, I, I I don't think we should get into it, but <laughs> but certainly their reluctance. Well, was, I think you should, well, but well, well their reluctance to to get into it, I suppose, was in some instances perhaps by virtue of their position. Uh, they felt they weren't weren't, weren't authorized to speak. Um, so, but but what we could do is the heft of our reporting and the considerable weight of the information that we had got about what they had said in a particular meeting or their approach to a certain issue or controversy meant that we could go to them and say, well, look, we are in a position to write this and we will be putting this in the book. So it would be really good if you would talk to us about your perspective of this. And in some instances, that worked to convince people that, to That's to kind talk. of a statement of that's, fact. That's kind of a threat, really. Well, is it a threat or is, is it a, a statement of fact and, and kind of good, good journalism? Um, you know, ultimately, we, we made sure that everything that we have put in the book, we could stand over. And even if we weren't able to speak to a particular person, we were confident enough that we had spoken to enough people or in some instances had documents which verified uh, people's accounts of that situation or that meeting. Uh, or, you know, in some instances we had text messages, which we can talk a little bit about as well. We, there's a, there's a, uh, a good deal of, of uh, email and text message correspondence littered across the book um, that, that, you know, made it impossible for a person to deny that that was what they did or what they said or, or the action that they took. So... That's kind of the approach that we took from the outset. It's a painstaking process. Uh, it took it. It took ages, um, and it's 
was not without its difficulties along the way. But I think, by and large, it, it worked to achieve that goal of, of telling the, uh, the best obtainable version of the truth. Part of it as well is, is that I think some people were eager, but not, maybe not eager, but happy enough to commit in principle to engaging with us. But then they adopted a bit of a, a wait-and-see attitude to kind of see what we were able to accumulate independently. Um, and, you know, there was a, an almost kind of war of attrition with some people where you'd kind of go back and engage um, periodically and say, as Hugh outlined, you know, we, we've learned X, Y, and Z. And I think that Hugh mentioned that, that the heft of the reporting, one of the first things that we did was was sit down together and draw up a list from our respective and or shared contact books of, of everyone that we thought would have a useful perspective or insight into this. And we came up with 126 names um, who were involved across the state response, almost universally at a, at a senior level. Um, so that would be people drawn from government, from the civil service, uh, from the HSE and, and from the kind of wider universe that that was Neffet and uh, we set about contacting them and also supplementing that with uh, you know a, a barrage of uh, freedom of information requests I, I think we have a spreadsheet somewhere with every freedom of inf- information request we put in again it, it, it's more than a hundred so we were accumulating this kind of vast archive of primary source materials uh, dozens and then hundreds of hours of interviews that we we conducted jointly and then listened back to and wrote memos based on so we we were kind of um able to 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 reverse engineer people who who may have been waiting to see how far we got down the road with the accumulated weight of the reporting uh, and then on top of that you know people uh, sources who we are deeply indebted to um would kindly slip us the occasional document that we that we shouldn't have or wouldn't be able to get under the freedom of information act which again helped us understand more completely the the picture that was evolving in real time and also maybe present that 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 picture to people and say here's our understanding and here's our understanding of of what was going on at the time is that accurate do you think that we're going in the right direction uh, what's what was your input into that process at any given time this is one of the things that interests me again about the you know the sort of tradecraft in in writing the book because it's very clear from reading it that you have as as uh, as you mentioned earlier as well uh you know, obviously copies of a, an enormous amount of text messages and WhatsApps exchanged between, you know, a wide array of of sources who were involved in the management of this. Also, you just, you know, from, from reading the book, you also have an awful lot of FOI, freedom of documents obtained under the Freedom of Information Act. It's, there are cabinet, excerpts from cabinet memos, liberally sprinkled uh throughout the book and you mentioned you know the hundreds of hours of uh of 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 interviews that you did with people but one of the achievements of the book uh it seems to me is that you resisted the temptation to put too much into it so the book is a manageable size it clips along at a very readable pace and the flaw in some of these type of books seems to me, and you look at the books done, you know, by Tim Shipman of the the Sunday Times. Seems to me that he 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 f- succumbs to that temptation to put everything into it. So, tell us a little bit about the, you know, I suppose the editing process, uh, if you like, or the self editing process. Not so much done by the editors of the book, but done by yourselves as uh, as you go along. 
Because there's, there's got to be a temptation to quote every AFOI document at length and all that to demonstrate the scope of your research. But, but you didn't fall into that trap. Part of it, I think, is, is, is this principle that underpinned it, which was the, the moments that mattered, right? So when you have a story as all-encompassing as COVID that kind of led every newspaper and every radio bulletin for the guts of two years, there's a lot of blind alleyways that, you know, the political system or NEFIT or indeed journalists and the media go down. There's a lot of stories that may seem important at the time, but actually in the final reckoning aren't. Um, so we wanted to kind of give our readers a seat, a seat at the table at the moment, the moments that mattered. And even in during the writing process, I think we developed quite a good kind of um, radar for you know controversies that we felt would flare up, and then ultimately, even though they may seem important at the time, fade away in the final reckoning. Um, so we were able to kind of filter those things as they happened in real time, but also. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that in the course of your professional life, Pat, you've read a, a cabinet memo or two. And, Just the ones um, you get, Jack. It's not always the, the the world's most interesting stuff. Some some of it is filler. So it's it's identifying, I think, you know, on the one hand, something that may be revelatory or not previously known, but also the important bits that were being shown to the centre, to, to the, the, the most powerful group of people in the country, i.e. the cabinet and, and the civil servants around them at any given time that informs key decisions being made at that time. So, for example, we have a memo that um, the cabinet was shown in the run-up to uh, Christmas of 2020, which discussed, uh, you know, the different kind of behavioural reaction in the wider population to uh, the rising case numbers at a given time. And the reason why, at, at that time rather, and the reason why that is important is because during every other previous surge of the disease, people were kind of ahead of the pop, of the public health advice and had started to control their behaviour. Whereas at Christmas 2020, it was actually quite different. Um, perhaps informed by the overriding message from government, which was, you know, that you can go ahead and socialise, they hadn't started to moderate the behaviour, despite the fact that the disease profile was changing and deteriorating rapidly. So we thought that was important and revelatory on the first hand, that that was what was being shown to Cabinet. And then in the second hand, that, you know, the, the, that, that showed something about how the population was reacting differently in real time. Yeah, and I mean, like you, you talk about sort of, you know, using the documentation sparingly. I mean, one of the things we tried to do as well was to use it to sort of tell a story that might not have been known. So like a good example of that is where uh, chapter 14, where we have kind of correspondence between the then outgoing Taoiseach Leo Radker and his Secretary General Martin Fraser, which, uh, you know, Fraser's emails and texts to the Taoiseach in that period, which we actually obtained under Freedom of Information, um, were kind of carefully constructed and sort of put in such a way as which to convey Fraser's caution about reopening too much. And this, I think, is important because in the summer of 2020, there was a, a big push to kind of get the country as, as open as possible and to get back to normal as much as possible, uh, given that the disease was was in abeyance. Um, but here we have the top civil servants in the country basically saying that, look, we really need to be careful about this because as we kind of convey elsewhere in the book, Martin Fraser had kind of come to the conclusion sort of around the end of April that, you know, this disease, whilst, whilst it was you know going in a downward trajectory at that point in time, there was no vaccination, there was no cure, um, and it, there was every chance it could come roaring back later in the year. So... This is, uh, you know, this we thought was was an insight that was important to convey of, of you know, the, the, the most uh, important civil servant in the country telling 
uh, the leader of the country that, look, we really need to be careful about this. Um, and again, so that's where we try and, and, and to use the documents to tell stories that people don't know about. Sometimes it is also just tremendous fun, some of the stuff that we got our hands on. Um, I think my, my favourite document in the entire book is um, an email that Leo Varadkar, when he was Taoiseach in the, in the kind of final days of him holding that position, sent around to uh, all his cabinet colleagues after a, a set of cabinet leaks, imploring them not to leak, uh, which has now kind of informally become known as... Uh, the leaked, which which in terms leaked to us, so we now call it the leaked anti-leaking memo from Leo the leak, <laughs> which was was one of the first documents that we uh, we were leaked. In fact, uh, kind of in the summer of twenty twenty one, which was, uh, you know, I suppose an indicate it was it was an early sign to us that there was there was a lot to be obtained from from reporting it on this book for the, the following few years or following few months. Did you find uh, Hugh with with your your sources when you are you know you're in the process of trying to you know tempt them into cooperation i mean i've i've uh, done a couple of books which are very different subjects but adopted a not dissimilar approach of trying to tell important events in as much detail as uh, as as possible and one of the experiences that i i found was when approaching people, you are, you know, you're banging your head against a brick wall for months and months and months. And then you get a break and a couple of people talk to you. And then words, you know, whether explicitly or implicitly appears to circulate amongst decision makers that people are talking. And then all of a sudden the dam kind of breaks and lots of people talk to you. Did, did you find that same experience or... or, or we find a different a different way that it happened to you. Yeah, I think so. I I, I mean, I, I do think that the the more we spoke to people, the more uh, people were willing to speak to us. I mean, one one of the things we also kind of agreed at the outset was that we weren't going to talk about who we were speaking to. Um, we felt that was very important sure. to kind of protect the confidentiality of the process. So, you know, we would sit down with someone and say, oh, I hear you spoke to such and such. And we'd say, well, look, we can't talk about that. But it was clear to us from talking to a number of people that there had been some discussion uh, in the the corridors of power and elsewhere as to what uh, the two lads were getting up to with their book and how they were getting on. And yeah, like, I mean, I do think that the, the more, the, the deeper we got into the process, the more willing people were to speak to us because I think, you know, people who did sit with us realized that, you know, we we were really serious about this and we were asking very detailed questions. Um, we were spending as much time as, as humanly possible with these people. I mean, we sat with people for hours on end. We, we did a lot of three-hour interviews with some people. Um, and I think that word kind of filtered through to others that um, this was this was an important thing to to participate in. I mean, one of the other things I think which was which was interesting about the book is that people's memories um, were were patchy on. I mean, and I'm sure you found this as well, Pat, in, in doing your books. That like when you sit with someone and you're trying to get them to recall certain meetings and certain events and you know what was their thinking at this particular time, their 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 recollections can be can be somewhat patchy, and that was particularly acute for a number of people we spoke to who. Like just the intensity of particularly that kind of first wave when everything was so unknown about what was going on and it was a real kind of crisis point and there was, you know, just endless amounts of meetings and huge monumental decisions being taken. Some people just like it was all a bit of a blur to them by the time they came to, to, to talk about it in kind of the summer of 2021. But um, you know, we got we got there eventually. But um, but yeah, no, definitely there was a 
there was definitely a willingness of people to speak once they knew that, that, that other people were speaking to us. But as I said, you know, we never at any point disclosed who, who we were speaking to, to to protect the confidentiality of the whole, the whole thing. Did you ever get a sense, Jack, that, you know, there was a, a coordinated attempt in any part of, uh, of, of government, maybe in NEFED, the Department of Health, the Department of the Taoiseach, to, you know, agree a version of the truth that would be imparted to you? Because I'm sure there were conversations in those places about the fact that you guys were, were doing this. I, there, there, there's a moment in the, in the, water, the Watergate tapes, which goes, that was years since I've heard, but it goes something like, you know, advisor says, um, Mr. President, the lira is under pressure uh, this morning. And Nixon says, fuck the lira. What about these journalist guys? Or words to that, words to that effect. You know, did, did you ever get a sense that you, you guys were being, you know, that there was a determined effort to agree stuff, agree a version that would be presented to you guys? Yes and no. I mean, I, I do think that among certain of the, the organizations involved, um, there were there were kind of water watershed moments where they decided to engage, and we and we found that you know there was you know a, a, a step change in the level of buy in that we got from individuals within those organisations, and certainly from what people were saying to us, um, you know bilaterally, you know when the tape was off or whatever, we got the sense that people were comparing notes, you know, um, post interview, uh, so two subjects may may talk to each other, but again, I think that um, not not to blow our own horn too much, but like. A coordinated strategy where, you know, multiple people agree on a kind of sanitized version of the truth is very difficult to maintain in the face of two things. First of all, a diverse set of interests where people probably can't agree on one sanitized version of the truth because there's there's contested ground there. And secondly, you know, when we were able to come to people and we interviewed a lot of the principals kind of in the middle or later on in the process after we interviewed people at a, at a kind of more medium or, or junior level, we're able to come to people with a position of accumulated knowledge um, and and an established fact base and an established kind of narrative that we'd already built and we're confident around. It's harder, I think, to to present a a more kind of shallow um, and and less kind of embarrassing or or less kind of controversial version of events in the face of that kind of accumulated weight of reporting. So I think the way that it fell, and sometimes this was by accident rather than design, but the way that it fell for us, I think, favoured that um, and then also, I think, in, in fairness, you know, as, as much as um, politicians and, and, and their and the people around them are, you know, devious and deceitful and all the rest of it. Uh, nonetheless, there were people and, and we do acknowledge this in, in the book, you know, people did engage in good faith across the uh, across the three kind of big pillars of the response, the, the NEF, the HSE and, and, and government, they, they engaged in full faith and in good faith and they, they engaged fulsomely as well. Um, and they were giving of their time. And I think that there is a wider recognition given the kind of extraordinary nature of events, the mass mobilization of the state, which there's no kind of parallel to in recent or indeed perhaps in Irish history. And they, they wanted to get their version, uh, you know, in the public domain, they wanted to tell the story. And, you know, once they bought into the fact that we were trying to, you know, do it in good faith ourselves and tell a very full version of the story, they were willing to get on board with that as well. Well, never be afraid on this podcast of uh, blowing your own uh, journalistic uh, horn, Jack. As, as Damon Runyon says, uh, he who tooted not his own horn, the same shall not be tooted. Um, I want to talk about some of the things that you guys found out. But first, I'm going to take a short break. So we'll be back in a minute. Never suffer the buffer again. 
Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. Hey! Get out of here! I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. And we're back and this is Pat Leahy sitting in for Hugh Linehan. And I'm talking to the authors of Pandemonium, Power Politics and Ireland's Pandemic. Our own Jack Horgan Jones and Hugh O'Connell of the Irish Independent. Hugh, um, one of the the things that comes across uh, throughout the book is the extent to which decision-making was centralised. It may have been a slightly bifurcated centre, but decision-making was hugely centralised. And it's something that Fintan O'Toole, um, who, who is a writer with our paper, Hugh, has, um, has mentioned on a number of occasions about how the state's existing emergency structures were completely set aside and this uh you know this the nefed structure was uh, was set up and went on to become you know this this source of of immense power in the the, the state's response to that do you think that that was an entirely ad hoc arrangement was it something that kind of just happened because Tony Holohan was a force for personality who filled that void or, or was it something that was implicitly or explicitly designed to handle this crisis no i mean it definitely wasn't designed uh, at the outset to as as the way of handling this crisis i mean i, I suppose a couple of things happened i mean nefit was set up in january at the end of january 2020 to respond to what was at that point something that was kind of in Asia, it was in China, obviously, in, in particular, uh, had kind of reached, I think, maybe parts of, of Europe, but certainly wasn't uh, considered to be a, a major existential threat to the state as it would subsequently become. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, so NEFIT was set up. There was no ministerial order to set up. That in and, itself, in and of itself is not unusual. Um, NEFITs had been set up before to deal with uh, previous infectious diseases. Um, but it was set up uh, and it became, I suppose, in the vacuum uh, and the vacuum being the fact that there was a general election in the middle of February um, or sorry, early February, which uh, led to an uncertain outcome and no clear route to the formation of a new government. Uh, a caretaker administration, uh, one full of politicians uh, in Fine Gael who were very reluctant to go back into government at that point. So that kind of confluence of events, I suppose, and that sort of expectation, I think, across the system, as we kind of outline in the book, that you know, COVID nineteen or coronavirus, as it was more commonly known then, was going to be a bit like SARS and MERS, did sort of lead to this perhaps complacency, somewhat that that Ireland would be okay and we'd be fine and we'd get a couple of cases and we might get a death or two. But we'll be we'll be all right. Um, but then suddenly everything begins to change, and we see the virus takes off in northern Italy, and there's you know massive uh, massive fallout from that. And then you know by mid March we're imposing uh, public health unprecedented public health restrictions here, and then by the end of March we're we're locking down the country entirely. And really these are decisions being recommended to government by NEFIF, chaired by Tony Holhin, its membership almost entirely appointed by Tony Holhin himself. No political representation on that body. 
Uh, Simon Harris's efforts in late February to, to go into a meeting somewhat thwarted. Uh, he gets to sit in. Tell for us few, about that. Yeah, well, this is a meeting at the end of February where uh, Neffet is meeting to decide. This is the end of February 2020 yes. yeah. and the, the disease is just beginning to loom on the horizon and people are waking up to the fact that, you know, we're looking at hospitals being overrun and mm. and so forth and people are waking up to the fact that it's it's coming here. So, yeah. you take it so, so there's a meeting uh, to decide whether the uh, Six Nations rugby game between Ireland and Italy, which was due to take place at the Aviva Stadium in early March, uh, should go ahead and the decision is taken that that game should be cancelled. Um, but at that meeting, Simon Harris, there's obviously, you know, this is, this is a huge moment in, politically and Simon Harris is keen to be in amongst it. Yeah. Um, but he kind of goes into the Neffet meeting, he sits in, he addresses the members of Neffet and it's kind of made clear to him that his, his presence is, is no longer needed at that point by the chief medical officer who is of the view and, and this is kind of outlined in, in detail in the book that, you know, ministers shouldn't be sitting in on these kind of meetings because that has an effect in terms of the uh, decisions that might be taken but more, I suppose more importantly what people might say in those meetings if the minister is present that they might be reluctant to give their, their clear and honest views in the presence of a, a minister because a lot of the people in the room are civil servants and so on and they're very conscious of their political masters so his his clear view Holohan and he articulated this uh, at, at, to, to Simon Harris's successor Stephen Donnelly is that Neffet meetings were not meetings that, that ministers uh, should be should be attending Um but but this so, but so this becomes the process where Neffet uh, meets it makes it meets in private um, it makes recommendations to governments and government considers these recommendations and by and large in, in wave one they were uh, in fact they were almost entirely implemented uh, the, the recommendations from Neffet uh, this changes as the pandemic wears on which we can get into but but I mean the structures I suppose that existed in terms of responding to kind of major national emergencies as you said Vincent O'Toole has, has written on it in, in some detail and we, we explore it a little bit in the book they're never really at any point seriously considered you know Owen Murphy who uh, was the housing minister at the time and would have been involved in some of the national emergency coordination groups that have been set up for extreme weather events is kind of saying to cabinet colleagues, you know, should we not really be using this structure? And it's kind of, you know, it's it, it's never really seriously considered. And then as the pandemic wears on, there's, you know, there, there are other structures set up, a COVID oversight group and so on and so forth, which uh, are used, I suppose, as a way to sort of triage information coming from NEFIT, which... Um, which, uh, which are, I suppose, at that point becoming more uh, contentious and certainly encountering more uh, resistance from within the political system. Because, Jack, the decision-making process moves from, and, and in that period to which Hughes referred there now, the early period of the pandemic, Simon Harris is still a health minister. I seem to recall him saying, like, I'm not making any decisions. He said this quite explicitly. I'm not making any decisions. It's the public health experts that are, that are making the decisions, but that that structure of decision making changes as uh, as the the pandemic proceeds. I mean, to what extent does politics and the perception of political interests and of public opinion on the part of the politicians become an increasingly important part of that decision-making matrix. So I think as, as Hugh has outlined, you know, there was a situation in 
February, March and April of 2020, where the state was effectively reactive uh, to the threat of the pandemic. And it was, as Pascal Dunhue outlines in the book, perceived as an existential threat to the state. And and that was one of the quotes that kind of struck me most and strikes me most still the entire book, because it threatened the very fundamentals of state provision. You know, like, would the welfare system work? Would the healthcare system work? And if, if modern states aren't able to do either of those things, really, kind of, what what are they about? So I think it, it's it clear it's clear that the decision makers at the time viewed it as an existential threat. And as an adjunct of that perception, a lot of the decision making in order to preserve the state really and preserve the state's capacity to operate became massively centralised, and um, and the political system to a large extent, was uh, waylaid. Um, So you had, you know, effectively Martin Fraser and his team, uh, a few other civil servants, uh, senior in the Department of Finance, the Department of um, Public Expenditure and Reform, NEFIT, and the top people around government and their advisors, and they made the decisions. And and there were a lot of people within government who were were uneasy with that in real time and in retrospect, who almost felt that it was a kind of subversion of the democratic process in some ways, and in some ways it was. What changed over time was that while, you know, everyone um, was at it, on that in the first instance, tensions began to emerge in the first instance around summer when we had this um, quite independent-minded uh, uh, COVID or Octus committee set up under the uh, under the chairmanship of Michael McNamara, the independent TD from Clare, who was willing to kind of parse and interrogate things, um, you know, from an independent viewpoint. And he actually, he's quoted in the book saying, you know, I felt my, my, my mission at the time was to challenge the government and to challenge NEFA, and I perceived no difference between the two at the time as well. So that kind of political consensus, that political public health consensus, that informed the first, the response to the first wave begins to kind of disintegrate across the summer quite quietly and, you know, to no great fanfare because the disease was gradually coming under control. What changes is that there was no attempt to kind of really formalize the structure into something that might be more suitable across the medium and long term. Leo Varadkar thought that the Nefesh structure was suboptimal. That's the use that he, that's the phrase that he uses to describe it. Stephen Donnelly in opposition and in government also shared the view that the Nefesh structure the structure for formulating advices and the kind of agenda-setting power that NAFTA had accumulated was not good. Um, and this was a, it was a viewpoint that was that was shared across all the government, although they never kind of picked up that political ball and ram with it. They never exercised that executive or political power they had to change things. So we ended up in a situation towards the end of summer and into autumn where you have the same the same suboptimal, to use Varadkar's phrase, structures for managing the pandemic and a resurgent virus. And you have other situations, other factors that complicate that further. A new government, a new health minister, a CMO who steps out um, to provide, provide care for his terminally ill wife, but then comes back and perhaps doesn't perceive that the political backdrop has changed and, and perhaps thinks that he still has the same kind of almost fiat authority to issue um, advices to government, which is not as receptive when the new coalition is in power, um, to just doing effectively what it's told. Uh, and that leads to that kind of conflagration at October where that surprise level five recommendation is issued, which the government in the first instance ignores um, and really kind of poisons the well for much of the rest of 2020 and, and the view, I, I suppose, our view and the view of the book is that, you know, it, it leads into a schism between the public health advisors and, and the government, the political decision makers, um, which, you know, forms the backdrop and informs the decisions taken at Christmas. Just one final note on this. I think I think that it, it's important to, to note that, like, the, the advice that was coming across was, you know, remarkable and extraordinary in every sense. It was to to end the 
the the social and economic life of the country and the people that lived in it. So I think that it's it's important and natural that the people who are responsible for the social and economic life of the citizenry, i.e. the government, would challenge that and would want to interrogate that. Where I think the failing is, such as such as there is one, is in in not identifying that those um that there are ways to reform that and perhaps um change the process for addressing those advices and, and triage it a little more effectively as it came through. It's worth noting, going back a little bit now, but there's an extraordinary admission in the book by Simon Coveney, who was the, the Tónishta uh, during the first wave, that um, Martin Fraser had become so uh, significant, I suppose, in the response to the pandemic that um, it, he had come to the view, uh, which he articulated to us in, in late October of, of last year, that in many ways um, Martin Fraser was was uh, more important than a member of the cabinet, um, which I, I just think is a, is a quite, I mean, like we might kind of scoff, we might scoff and say, well, look, yeah, that makes sense. I know, but he's... it's quite extraordinary when you think about it. I mean, the, the Secretary General of the government's uh, considered by the Deputy Prime Minister to be more important than some of his colleagues at Cabinet. I think it's, it's, it's pretty shocking. But it's also, I think, illustrative of the degree to which uh, power uh, for the pandemic response was centralised. And it was centralised, really, to the, to the Taoiseach's department in large part. There's two periods that are described in vivid detail in the book, not just through your descriptions of what was happening on the ground in the hospitals, but also in the accounts of your sources about how serious the situation was uh, on, on the ground in the healthcare system. And that's during the, the first wave and then perhaps even more vividly during the, 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 the second wave, which is probably the worst period of the pandemic in the early part of, uh, of 2021. But I, I wonder if one of the things that we have learned uh, from that experience is that hospital capacity and since the early days of the first wave when the fear was you know that Bergamo would be repeated that uh, you know that the health system would effectively buckle under uh, under the strain and patients would be left to die at home and so uh, and, uh, and so forth H- have we learned that actually the health system the capacity in the health system is a bit more elastic than what we, you know, than what we might have thought. So, you know, as you guys report, we were told there was, you know, this, the outer limit of your capacity, 350 ICU beds. But if you got to 349, then there are workarounds and fixes that the health system can uh, can avail of, which might be suboptimal, to use Leo Varadkar's phase, but could still do a job. So... What do you think of that, uh, Jack? You know, is the health capacity of the health system not infinitely elastic, but elastic to the extent that capacity is always likely to be found? Or did we really approach the edge of the cliff in that period? There's a good bit to unpack there. Um, I think that what healthcare systems do and the people that work within them, and I think we all have a newfound respect for those people after COVID, is, is they cope. They find they find a way to deliver care in some way, shape, or form. Now, the the standards of care and the outcomes associated with that care may deteriorate um, 
very rapidly or over time, but they do they do muddle through. Um, and you know, even when a, a healthcare system is perceived to have been overwhelmed, like happened in Bergamo and very nearly happened here in January of 2021, it, it continues to provide care. It continues to you know admit patients uh, and treat them. Um, I think that what we have to remember about the flexibility that was shown during that first and third wave, the two most serious waves, is that the rest of the healthcare system was effectively shut down. And, you know, it was all pointed in one direction. Um, so while it's it's a good emergency response and shows that the the, the HSE is able to respond to um, something as, as seismic, uh, a threat as seismic as, as COVID on a short-term basis by shutting the rest of, of what it does down, it also invites, you know, really ruinous long-term um, consequences in terms of delayed care and delayed diagnoses of cancers and all the rest of it. So it's not, it's not a suitable long-term approach. But I think that what more recent waves have shown, certainly in the current incarnation of COVID, the Omicron variant and its sublineages, um, and the current level of acquired immunity and the current level of, of vaccine penetration is that the healthcare system can currently withstand full-blown waves of infection uh, without, I mean, it does damage the, the standard of care, but without fundamentally undermining the, da- the, the standard of care, either, either given to people who have COVID or people who have uh, other diseases and need to be admitted to hospitals. Um, so I think that that's, that's, an important, um, that's an important kind of takeaway as well, that, you know, at the moment, given in, in its current, the, the, the current incarnation, we, we, can, we can deal with it, but like, we shouldn't lose sight of, of the costs associated and we shouldn't just presume that, you know, the healthcare system has sufficient flex at all times to do that. Um, you were just approaching the end here, but a couple of other things that I'd like to get in before we finish. You dwell briefly, I think, in the book on the question of zero COVID. Now, you know, you, you guys are you guys are now the country's foremost experts on how to manage uh, uh, COVID. What's what's your view of put us on effort? <laughs> no, please don't. What's your view of, uh, of 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 zero COVID as a strategy? Was it ever viable here because it had quite a lot of political support and support in the uh, you know by prominent commentators in the media at one stage. Yeah, I mean, I think that zero COVID really came onto the agenda in a massive way in January 2021, primarily and kind of across February and March, because uh, primarily because it was such a grim time and there was no kind of clear route out of restrictions other than what was at that time an extremely slow and patchy vaccination program where there were uh, supply constraints and doubts about whether uh, commitments would be delivered upon and doubts about, but that doubts about the state's capacity to actually inoculate um, the entire adult population, which actually it proved capable of doing um, in the end. And that's a, a great testament to the to the HSE, notwithstanding uh, criticisms of other aspects of its response, perhaps. But um, the the lure of zero COVID, Pascal Donner, who said to us in the book, was kind of one of the most dangerous moments politically, I think, for the government, and what what he thought was a dangerous moment politically for the government because. Um, it, it offered a very attractive proposition whereby if we had a very short and sharp and harsh lockdown and we introduced things like mandatory hotel quarantine where everyone coming into the state had to go into a hotel for two weeks, we could lick this thing completely and we could drive case numbers down to zero or single figures. The reality was somewhat different because um, 
we are not Australia and New Zealand. Um, we have a porous land border with a different jurisdiction. And in fact, Simon Coveney in the book talks about his kind of, uh, you know, his efforts, his his um, his spurned efforts to try and get Arlene Foster, for example, the First Minister of Northern Ireland at the time, to stop uh, travel from uh, mainland Britain to Northern Ireland uh, kind of in the Christmas of 2020 when uh, the, the UK variant or the, the Alpha variant as it later became known was was springing up and causing huge havoc um, but like was, was told basically no. So in that scenario uh, where you have an open land border uh, with a different jurisdiction it's very difficult to implement a policy of zero COVID uh, in the 26 counties when the, you can't implement it in the other six counties and I think that that was dangerous politically for the government because, as you said, an awful lot of the opposition parties were pushing this. Uh, I, I believe, you know, Labour at the time had this national aggressive suppression strategy, which was zero COVID by another name. It, it had popular support. Um, the poll numbers for the implementation of mandatory hotel quarantine were off the charts. I mean, they were in the kind of 90 90% territory, it's huge, huge support. And really that's what forced the government's hand in, in many respects. And we detail this in the book that you know, ultimately the government was very resistant to mandatory hotel quarantine. Leo Varadkar very, spoke very scathingly about it. Uh, but within days of doing so, the cabinet agreed to, to bring in a, a limited version of hotel quarantine. And, and it ran and it operated at a cost, I think, of about 22, 25 million um, it it had, uh, you know, Stephen Donnelly told us that he thought it was a great success and that it had an effect in terms of uh, reducing uh, the number of, or the, the potential for new variants to come into the country and, and, and keep uh, cases at a, at a lower level than they might otherwise have been. But Leo Radker conversely told us that he, he didn't really see the, the overall benefit of it. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, look, in, in, in the end, really, in the final analysis of the proposition of zero COVID, I mean, I think, t to my mind, on a, on a personal basis, it's just hard to see how it would have worked with, with Northern Ireland up the road, you know. Jack? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, like, there's, you know, in, in the abstract, um, zero COVID was very attractive, but, like, it's not just whether a, an idea may seem um, like it's going to offer a, a better version of, of life and it wouldn't have been harder to have a better version of life in January and February of 2021. It, it's the degree to which it's practicable. Um, and I think that it, both in, in real time, notwithstanding the, the, brief, uh, the brief experiment with MHQ, there was too much resistance from within the political and civil service establishment, uh, which... It was well founded in the kind of industrial policy, the geography and the political constitution of the island, which viewed um, a zero COVID approach as, as, as an impossibility. Um, you know, in, 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 the, in the survey history of COVID, uh, everyone looks good at sometimes and everyone looks bad at sometimes. You know, it was, it was just before we had our, our terrible uh, Christmas that we were being praised for having the lowest uh, COVID rates in, in Europe. Um, so, like, there is no one good way of handling the pandemic. You know, Australia and New Zealand are having a more difficult exit from the pandemic because they have lower levels of acquired immunity because of the zero COVID and very tight border control policies they had. You know, so, like, there is... The, but they have very low death they, rates. They, they have very low death I, I rates. I suppose, which leads me on to my... my not my final, almost my final, and, and grossly oversimplified uh, question or a question looking for a grossly oversimplified answer, for which my apologies, but this is sometimes the business that, that we're in. How do you rate Ireland's performance? What, like out of 10? Compared uh, to its peers. <laughs> uh, I think that Ireland's performance by most of the early objective data is reasonably 
good by comparison to uh, most other European countries. But, you know, there's a few reasons for that. And there's actually two reasons for that, uh, kind of at its core level. Um, we had a huge uptake of the vaccination, uh, you know, one of the highest uptakes in Europe, uh, if not the world. Uh, but we also had, and, and the book kind of, kind of centres on this at the, at the outset, um, some of the longest and the harshest lockdowns um, in Europe. Uh, and we had a huge degree of compliance with those lockdowns, which meant that people were staying at home when they were asked to stay home and they were getting their vaccination when they were asked to get their vaccination. But, you know, I, I think, like, the, the, the real verdict on Ireland's handling of the, of the pandemic will come in, in many years' time. Um, we've tried to give an early verdict, I suppose, in our book. But I think, you know, there is an, an importance, I think, which... I'm not sure the political system is particularly bought into at this moment in time because there's so much else going on. But like, there is a real importance to having a proper public inquiry into all this. I mean, it's okay for us to say that, okay, objectively, it looks like Ireland did pretty well um, and looked at we all take our vaccine and so on. But like, we really do need a proper look at this. I mean, the, the, the book has two uh, chapters on what happened in nursing homes. And there's a lot to unpack in those chapters, which we, we haven't talked about here today. But there's, there was some clear failings along the way. And a proper exploration of that is needed uh, in order to, uh, first of all, you know, learn the lessons, I suppose, but also to kind of to, to, to reach that verdict as to how Ireland performed. Um, and I'm not sure the political system is necessarily bought into the idea of, of a full public inquiry. I mean, the Taoiseach talks about a, a look back and not kind of hauling in the likes of Tony Holohan before... Uh, a kind of a grilling from a bunch of um, a bunch of barristers or a, a bunch of politicians, but you know we will need something, um, and it's not really clear what that is going to be as of yet. And I think only then, when we do that kind of thing, um, and perhaps when we have the um, the perspective of a few years on from the pandemic, and hopefully we're dealing with a, a surge in the disease later this year or another infectious disease next year, um, we'll be able to give a proper verdict as to as to how Ireland performed. Well, um, yeah, perhaps when that uh, when that inquiry comes, I've, I've I've no doubt that they'll will use your book as um, vital source material. It's a super read. I urge everybody to go out and buy it. I bought my copy in Hodges Figures, and the price tag tells me it is sixteen ninety five, uh, which would be money well spent. And um, so far this morning, uh, congratulations on the book again. Uh, good luck with this. And uh, Hugh. O'Connell, Jack Horgan-Jones, thank you very much and good luck. Thanks, Pat. Thanks, Pat. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Hugh Linehan will be back next week and today's episode was produced by Declan Connellan and Suzanne Brennan and JJ Vernon was on sound. We'll talk to you next week.